We give it verbatim, et literatim, as we see it, and leave our readers to make out what they can of it. Ebenezer et Jehovah Feech. The sense which we conjecture is not very luminously conveyed, but it seems to savor of the eminent piety of its author. The ring presented to the same lady by Mr. Wadrow, her second husband, is also now before us, and its moral is more intelligible. The device is a flaming heart in the center, with a hand on one side giving, and another on the other side receiving. And this plain English motto, I give you mine, and grasp at yours. The writer adds, From these specimens we see that the clerical gentlemen of our olden times, while they were not destitute of learning, were not devoid of the tender affections. End footnote. And his young wife would often say to him, It was a terror to her to hear him so much upon death. But he said it was none to him, so he lived, desired, and died lamented. End quote. Sarah, her eighth child and third daughter, was born at Stanton Hall in the parish of Longhorsley in Northumberland on the 7th of November, 1677. She became the wife of James Young of Gooley Hill, from whom, says, Mr. Mac- says Dr. McCree, writing in 1825, Samuel Denholm Young, Esquire of Gooley Hill, is descended. Agnes, her ninth child and fourth daughter, was born at Stanton Hall on the 20th of January, 1680. She married Mr. John Somerville, minister of Kerlaverock, to whom she had six children, one son, and five daughters. Mr. Charles Sheriff, the dumb miniature painter, was her grandson. She died of her seventh child, not brought to bed, on the 14th of August, 1712, and when medical assistance failed to do her any good, she said, quote, now I see that God calls me to die and leave this world and all my relations, which I am most willing to do. End quote. Then taking her farewell with the greatest composure and deliberation of her parents, children, servants, and husband, leaving her blessing to everyone present and to all her friends who were absent, with her eyes lifted up to heaven, she cried, quote, O my beloved, be thou as a roe and as a young heart upon the mountains of divisions. End quote. Then she begged that her friends present would unite in praying that God would mitigate her sufferings in passing through the dark valley and land her in her wished-for port. Before prayer was ended, her pain was abated, and closing her eyes a little after, with her own hand, she died with great tranquility. Janet, her tenth child and fifth daughter, was born on the 30th of January, 1682, at Stanton Hall, her father being then at London. She died on Sabbath, the 26th of March, 1693, near 8 o'clock at night at Peebles. Before her death, her father having been engaged in prayer, she said, quote, Now I am content to leave you all, end quote, and inquired at her mother whether they should know one another in heaven. Her mother told her she thought they would, and asked her whether she thought she would win there, to which she answered, I hope I shall. She died without any pain and with as much composure as if she had been going to see a friend, kissing her father, mother, and sisters, and bidding them all farewell. Mrs. John Livingstone, etc. 
Mrs. Livingstone, whose maiden name was Janet Fleming, was the eldest daughter of Bartholomew Fleming, merchant in Edinburgh, by his wife Marion Hamilton. She was married June 23, 1635, to the famous Mr. John Livingstone, afterward minister of Ancrum, by his father in the West Church of Edinburgh. Footnote. Livingstone's life written by himself. End footnote. In the following notices respecting this lady, it is not our intention to trace the whole of her history, but merely to select a single chapter from her life, relating to matters which fell out in the year 1674, when she was considerably advanced in years. Previous to this period, she had experienced many vicissitudes and trials, having shared in the hardships endured by Mr. Livingstone in the cause of nonconformity both in Ireland and in Scotland, and when on his being banished by His Majesty's dominions by the Privy Council for his fidelity to the same cause, he had embarked for Holland in the beginning of April 1663. She followed him in December that year, taking with her two of her children and leaving the other five in Scotland. She remained in Holland till the death of Mr. Livingstone, which took place in August 1672, when she returned to Scotland. Mr. Robert McWard, writing from Rotterdam to Lady Kenmure, says, Quote, Madam, it's like you will look for some account of the death of that great man of God, non such Mr. Livingstone, which I would have given you, but your ladyship will have it more perfectly from his worthy relict by whom you will be waited upon. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 58, Number 55. End footnote. On her return to Scotland, she took up her residence in Edinburgh, where two of her sons were resident. It was within less than two years after her return that she and several other Presbyterian ladies were concerned in those transactions which we now propose to rehearse. Our narrative relates to a petition which she and these ladies drew up and presented to the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, praying for liberty to enjoy undisturbed the preaching of the gospel by the non-conforming ministers and to the proceedings of the Privy Council against these ladies on that account. This will furnish a good illustration of the patriotic interest taken by the ladies of that period in the cause of suffering nonconformity, as well as of the determination of the government to ride roughshod over every attempt to obtain a mitigation or redress of grievances. The state of matters in which this petition originated may be briefly described. For about three months in the early part of the year 1674, an almost entire cessation from persecution took place. During this respite, which is called the Blink, the proscribed ministers, fearing that it would be of short duration, preached both in private houses and in the fields with unremitting and ardent zeal. In the West, field meetings were not of very frequent occurrence. The indulgence of 1672, which extended chiefly to that part of the country, rendering such meetings unnecessary. But in Fifeshire, Perthshire, Stirlingshire, Dumbartonshire, Lothian, Merce, Teviotdale, Annandale, Nithsdale, and other places to which the indulgence did not extend, or where it was more limited in its operation, they were very frequently held in mountains, mosses, and moors, and attended by immense multitudes. This liberty was owing not to any change in the spirit or policy of the government, but solely to political causes among which the chief cause was the animosities then existing between the different parties of statesmen. Lauderdale, who had now for a considerable time been a privy councillor in England, 
and the chief manager of affairs in Scotland had by his intolerable arrogance and more especially by his violent and tyrannical administration created a powerful opposition against him both in England and in Scotland. So strong was the faction against him in Scotland which was headed by the Duke of Hamilton that when he came down as His Majesty's Commissioner to hold the Scottish Parliament which was to meet in March 1674 finding it would be difficult or impossible for him to maintain his ground in it he adjourned it to October but never after ventured upon another Scottish Parliament to this state of political parties in Scotland we are mainly to trace the tranquility enjoyed during the blink Lauderdale secretly encouraged conventicles promising the persecuted ministers ample and unrestrained liberty that he might blame his opponents to the king as encouragers of these seminaries of rebellion and on the other hand his opponents connived at such meetings that they might impute the prevalence of them to him but matters changed upon a sudden the tempest of persecution again rose into fury on his return to London after the adjournment of the Scottish Parliament Lauderdale who notwithstanding the opposition made to him both in England and in Scotland retained the royal favor laid the blame of the conventicles held in Scotland upon his opponents the Scottish Privy Council was remodeled according to his wishes the most of his enemies being kept out and others friendly to him put in their places and by his advice letters from the king to the council followed each other in succession requiring them to adopt every means for suppressing conventicles on the 4th of June 1674 when the new council met for the first time a letter from His Majesty dated May 19th was read complaining that not only private but also field conventicles were held and that the pulpits of the regular ministers were invaded in some places and requiring the council to use their utmost endeavors for apprehending and trying field preachers, invaders of pulpits and such heritors as were ringleaders at field conventicles and in pulpit invasions calling in the standard forces and militia to their aid such were the circumstances which gave rise to this petition Mrs. Livingstone and a considerable number of other Presbyterian ladies in Edinburgh especially the wives and widows of ejected non-conforming ministers and some ladies of rank were in no small degree distressed at the threatened prospect of renewed and aggravated persecution little could they do to prevent the impending calamity prayer to God was almost their only remaining resource but necessity is prolific in suggesting its expedients and it occurred to some of them that as it was dangerous for ministers to petition the Privy Council for the redress of their grievances imprisonment being the only answer likely to be made they themselves might petition the Council for the undisturbed enjoyment of the gospel preached by the non-conforming ministers Mrs. Livingstone, it is not improbable, was the person by whom this expedient was suggested precedents for such a course of which she was not ignorant were not wanting in the history of the Church of Scotland in former days she well knew that such a method had been adopted in similar circumstances and with perfect success by a worthy relative of her own her aunt Barbara Hamilton footnote Barbara Hamilton was Mrs. Livingstone's mother's sister and the wife of Mr. John Mine Merchant Burgess Edinburgh two of Samuel Rutherford's letters are addressed to this lady she died in September 1654 and her husband Mr. Mine on the 30th of July that same year among the debts owing to them at their decease is by my lady Lorne 22 pounds by my lady Kenyer 
12 pounds 2 shillings. Register of Confirmed Testaments in Her Majesty's Register House, Edinburgh. End footnote. And other religious matrons of Edinburgh. When Mr. Robert Blair and other non-conforming ministers who had been deposed by the bishops of Ireland for non-conformity had come over to Scotland in 1637, and when Mr. Blair was threatened with still harsher treatment from the Scottish prelates, these ladies presented to the Privy Council a petition praying that he and other ministers similarly situated might have liberty to preach the gospel publicly wherever they were called or had opportunity to do so, and they at once obtained their request. Footnote. That worthy wife, B.H., Barbara Hamilton, brings to Mr. Blair paper, pen, and ink, saying, Quote, Write a supplication to the secret council and humbly petition them in your own name and in the name and behalf of others in your condition for liberty to preach the gospel publicly wherever ye get a call from honest ministers or people, and we that are wives shall put it in the treasurer's hand as he goes into the council. End quote. Whereunto Mr. Blair condescended and delivers his supplication written with his own hand to her. The first council day immediately following, there convened a great number of the religious matrons in Edinburgh, drawn up as a guard from the council house door to the street. They agreed to put the supplication in the hand of the oldest matron, Alison Cockburn, relative of Mr. Archibald Rowe. When the treasurer, Traquair, perceived the old woman presenting to him a paper, suspecting that it was something that would not relish with the council, he did put her by and quickly goes from her toward the council house door, which being perceived by Barbara Hamilton, she appears and pulls the paper out of the old weak woman's hand, and coming up to Traquair, did with her strong arm and big hand fast grip his guardy, that is his arm, saying, Stand, my lord, in Christ's name I charge you till I speak to you. He, looking back, replies, Good woman, what would you say to me? There is, said she, a humble supplication of Mr. Blair's. All that he petitions for is that he may have liberty to preach the gospel, etc. I charge you to befriend the matter as you would expect God to befriend you in your distress and at your death. He replied, I shall do my endeavor and what I can in it. Mr. Blair's supplication was granted by the secret council and so he had liberty not only to stay in Scotland but to preach the gospel to any congregation where he got an orderly call. End quote. Rowe's Life of Robert Blair, pages 153 and 154. Rowe adds, By this narration you may perceive how the Lord in in this time stirred up and animated the spirits not only of men, especially of the nobles, who were magnates at primores regni, and of the ministers of the gospel, but even of holy and religious women who, as they first opposed the reading of that black service book, July 23, 1637, so the Lord made them instrumental in many good affairs for the promoting of the Blessed Reformation. End quote. And end footnote. Guided by such a laudable example, Mrs. John Livingstone and the rest of these ladies made up their mind to make the attempt, whatever might be its success. And accordingly, without the aid of any of their ministers or of any man, they themselves drew up a petition to be presented to the Privy Council. The manner in which they were to transmit it 
were somewhat similar to the manner in which Barbara Hamilton and her associates presented their petition to the Privy Council on behalf of Robert Blair and the other non-conforming ministers of their time. On the morning of the 4th of June, the day on which the first meeting of the new council was to be held, all the ladies friendly to the petition were to assemble in the Parliament close some time before the members of the council came up to the meeting. Mrs. Livingstone, in consideration either of her advanced years or of her superior address, or of both, was appointed to present the petition to the Lord Chancellor, the Earl of Ross, and to request him to transmit it to the council, while fourteen other ladies, mostly ministers' widows, were engaged each to present a copy to some one of the principal councillors as they came up to the council house. According to this arrangement, a large number of ladies... Footnote. The number, according to Rowe, was 109, Life of Robert Blair, page 539. But, as according to Kirkton, they filled the whole Parliament close, the number must have been much greater. History of the Kirk of Scotland, page 345. End footnote. A large number of ladies convened in the Parliament close on the morning of the 4th of June, waiting the arrival of the councillors. At length the Chancellor's coach comes up first and when he and Archibald Sharp, who had been riding with him in the coach, alighted, Mrs. Livingstone was ready to accost him, and the crowd, eager to witness the scene, gathered to the spot. Sharp, who seems to have known nothing of the matter beforehand, seized with a guilty terror, kept close to the Chancellor's back. Footnote. When the councillors came out of their coaches, Sharp, who was as flied as a fox, clave close to the Chancellor's back. Rose, Life of Robert Blair, page 539. End footnote. Imagining, as was not unnatural for a man to do who had now spent many years in persecuting his old friends, the Presbyterians, and who had incurred very general odium, that the object of these ladies whom he had often maligned as fanatics and even by still worse names was to murder him. Footnote. Female Presbyterians were the objects of Sharp's peculiar hatred. When in 1664 the Privy Council confined William Gordon of Earlston to the town of Edinburgh for keeping conventicles and not attending his own parish church, Sharp, who had been at St. Andrews on hearing of this on his arrival in Edinburgh, did challenge the Chancellor for remissness and not executing the laws against delinquents and in particular for confining of Earlston to Edinburgh alleging it had been better to send him to his own house in Galloway than to detain him among the fanatical wives of Edinburgh. The consequence was that Earlston was banished out of Scotland. Rowe's Life of Robert Blair, page 464. Even in his public sermons, Sharp could not refrain from giving expression to his malignant hatred of Presbyterian women. In his opening discourse at one of his diocesan synods, at St. Andrews, he indulged in a strain of vehement invective against the unconform, honest people, especially against women whom he called she-zealots, satanesses. Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 523. End footnote. But his alarm was groundless, for though some of them becoming excited at the very sight of the man with whom was associated in their minds all the infamy of the traitor and the persecutor, called him Judas and traitor, and one of them, still bolder than the rest, laid her hand upon his neck and told him that ere all was done that neck would pay for it. 
There was no intention or attempt to do him any bodily harm. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 344 to 346. While these things are going on, Mrs. Livingstone addressed herself to the Chancellor, informing him of the object of so many females in assembling together, and presenting to him the petition which she entreated him to lay before the honorable members of His Majesty's Privy Council. The Chancellor, respectfully taking off his hat, graciously received the petition from Mrs. Livingstone and read it on the spot. After he had read it and had talked a short time with some of the other ladies, jesting with them according to his facetious manner and apparently pleased with the fright into which Sharp was thrown, Mrs. Livingstone proceeded to address him in support of the petition and took hold of his sleeve. He bowed down his head and listened to her because she spoke well, even till he came to the council chamber door. Footnote. Kirkton's History, pages 344 to 346. See also Wadrow's History, volume 2, page 269. Rowe, in his Life of Robert Blair, gives a different account of the Chancellor's reception of the lady's petition. He says that a grave matron, namely Mrs. Livingstone, presented their supplication to the Chancellor, entreating that he would present it to the council, but the chancellor slighting her and refusing the supplication was forced to take it from some others who thrust themselves in betwixt him and the trembling prelate, promising it should be read and considered. Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 539. End footnote. The petition is as follows. Quote, Unto the right honorable, the lords of his majesty's privy council, the humble supplication of several women of the city of Edinburgh, in their own name and in the name of many who adhere thereto, humbly showeth that whereas your petitioners, being long deprived of the blessing of a faithful public ministry and of the purity of worship and ordinances that God hath commanded, and after much sad suffering for attendance thereupon in private, yet for some short while bygone, and in the time when His Majesty's Commissioner was among us, your Lordship's petitioners have, without molestation, enjoyed some small liberty by His Majesty's gracious connivance. Yet now we are sadly alarmed that through the malicious and false information given in by some of those who side with and serve the bishops, your Lordships may be induced to the grief of the hearts of many thousands in this land to trouble the quiet meetings of the Lord's people at His worship. May it therefore please your lordships to grant such liberty to our honest ministers that are through the land and in this city that they may lawfully and without molestation exercise their holy function as the people shall in an orderly way call them that we may to the comfort of our souls enjoy the rich blessing of faithful pastors and that our pastors may be delivered from any sinful compliance with what is contrary to the known judgment of honest Presbyterians. In doing whereof, your lordships will do good service to God and the King's majesty, and deeply oblige all honest people in the land, and your petitioners shall ever pray, etc. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 269. End footnote. The other fourteen ladies in like manner presented copies of the petition to other members of the Privy Council as they passed to the Council Chamber. The lady who presented her copy to Lord Stairs, one of the Senators of the College of Justice, 
a man who was formerly a zealous covenanter but who became in the end a bitter persecutor, found no such kind reception as Mrs. Livingstone met with from the Chancellor, for he rudely threw it on the ground which made one remind him of his having belonged at one time to the remonstrators, the strictest sect of the Presbyterians during the Commonwealth, and of his having penned by the Western Remonstrants a paper for adherence to which Mr. James Guthrie and others suffered to the death. Footnote. Kirkton's History, pages 344 to 346. Wadrow's History, volume 2, page 269. Rose, Life of Robert Blair, page 469. In the proceedings of Mrs. Livingstone and her female associates, which we have now narrated, a liberal government would have found little to blame and no cause whatever for adopting against these ladies' legal proceedings. Their intentions were perfectly loyal, their petition in its object was highly reasonable, and though containing a plain declaration of their principles was couched in very moderate and respectful language. They assembled in the Parliament clothes in the most peaceable manner, and to none of the members of the council, with the exception of Archbishop Sharp, did they offer the slightest disrespect. But their lordships, resolute on putting down all petitioning and representation of grievances, which they well knew to be one of the most effectual safeguards against misgovernment and oppression, arbitrarily pronounced both the meeting and the petition seditious, and proceeded against those concerned in them as guilty of sedition. The councillors having got into the council house through the crowd, the petition was read. Meanwhile, the women were waiting in the Parliament closed for an answer, but there was no intention to grant them their request, and the Lord Provost with two baileys were sent out to entreat them peaceably to disperse and retire to their homes, which if they did, he promised to befriend them in their cause, and that their supplication should receive an answer tomorrow. They did as the provost, who spoke to them very discreetly, desired them. The Parliament close was quickly cleared, and all was again quiet, as if no crowd had assembled. At that meeting of council all the members were desired to name such ladies as they knew to be among the crowd. A few were named, and they were summoned to compere before the council at their next meeting, which was to be held on the 11th of June. A committee was also appointed to make inquiry into all the circumstances connected with the petition, by whom it was drawn up, and who had presented the different copies to the members of council. Footnote. We have here followed Rowe in his Life of Robert Blair, page 539. Wadrow, whose account is different from that of Rowe, mistakes the proceedings of the Privy Council on the 11th of June, when a second crowd assembled in the Parliament close for their proceedings on the 4th of June, the day on which the first crowd assembled. His narrative relates not, as he supposed, to their proceedings on the 4th of that month, but to their proceedings on the 11th. And we have so introduced it in the following paragraph, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 269. Wadrow says that the petition was subscribed, but this seems to be incorrect. The Privy Council, as we shall afterwards see, affirmed that no signatures were appended to it, and there is no reason to call in question the truth of their statement. End footnote. On the 11th of June, the ladies summoned, who were about a dozen, made their appearance at the bar of the Council. They were desired, previous to their examination, to take the oath usually administered, 
But this they all refused to do, not judging that they were bound to tell the whole truth in reference to the petition. They, however, declared in answer to questions put to them that no man had any hand in suggesting it or drawing it up, and that they were moved to the course they had taken by a sense of their starving and perishing condition, through the want of the gospel, having none to preach to them but ignorant and profane men, whom they could not conscientiously hear. After being examined, they were required to subscribe to their depositions, but this also the most of them refused to do. They were then dismissed and required again to compere before the council in the afternoon, which they did, attended in the parliament closed by a great multitude consisting not only of women but also of men, all resolved to stand by them and to prevent their being imprisoned. Having been again examined, they were put together in a room, and the provost of Edinburgh was sent out to disperse the crowd. But the crowd peremptorily refused to withdraw till their friends were dismissed, and declared their willingness to share with them in whatever they might suffer. On learning the bold resolution of the multitude without, the council dismissed the ladies who had been at their bar, entreating them to repair peaceably to their homes. Footnote Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 539. Wadros History, volume 2, page 269. End footnote. But, as if determined by all means, fair or foul, to be avenged on these ladies who had presumed to arraign the policy of the government, the council dismissed them, not honestly, but with the fraudulent intention of surprising them that night and carrying them from their beds to prison. This intention, however, being whispered by some counselors, the honest women left left their own houses so that they all escaped being made prisoners at this time with the exception of one poor woman who had apprehended no danger. Footnote, Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 539. End footnote. This second crowd in the Parliament clothes had the effect of still more irritating the Privy Council and in their proceedings against all the ladies it formed an additional article in the libel charging them with sedition. It strengthened their previous purpose to inflict some exemplary punishment on these female petitioners, a purpose formed with the design of frightening any, whether male or female, from in future making any similar attempt to lay their grievances before the government and to seek redress. To have granted the prayer of the petition, as they reasoned, would have been to open the sluice to an inundation which would have overflowed every barrier, putting it beyond their power to hem it in, or to say, Hitherto shalt thou come, and no farther. The proceedings of the Privy Council against these ladies continued till near the close of the year, and their case formed an article in most of the letters which came from the King to the Council during the summer. From the register of the proceedings of the council, we learn that on the 25th of June, several ladies who had refused to depone before the council, or committee of council, respecting the meeting of the 4th of June, and the petition, were lying in prison, for at their meeting of that day, quote, the lords of his majesty's privy council do recommend to the earls Marischal, Linlithgow, Caithness, Wigton, and the lord register, to meet tomorrow, and to consider any address which shall be made to them by Margaret Johnston. Footnote. Margaret Johnston was a daughter of the celebrated Archibald Johnston, Lord Warriston. End footnote. Lilius Campbell, or any others who are prisoners in the tollbooth of Edinburgh, for not deponing before the council or committee of council. 
footnote, that is, for refusing to make their depositions upon oath. In a letter to the Duke of Lauderdale on the 2nd of July, the council say, quote, Inquiry has also been made concerning the petition offered in a tumultuary way by some women, of whom, diverse being cited, these appearing and refusing to give their oaths as to the points interrogated upon, are imprisoned and certification is granted against such as were absent, end quote. Wardrow's History, Volume 2, page 241. End footnote. As also to consider any address which shall be made for any persons against whom certification is granted upon that account with power to them to set the said persons at liberty or to continue further execution of the certification against them upon their giving their oaths and appoint any two of them to be a quorum. End quote. Footnote, Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. The Privy Council, who were sufficiently disposed of, of themselves to deal harshly with the female petitioners, were urged on by the court at London, which was still guided in the management of Scottish affairs, almost exclusively by the Council of Lauderdale, the Ahithophel of the court of Charles II, as he was designated by some of the Scottish martyrs. On the 30th of June, the council received a letter from His Majesty dated the 23rd of that month stating that he had received information of, quote, that seditious petition of many women and of their tumultuous carriage at the delivering of it, end quote, and requiring the council to use their, quote, utmost rigor in finding out and bringing to just judgment the ringleaders of such seditious and insolent practices and for quelling that mad spirit, End quote. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 238. End footnote. To the prosecution against these women, which was severe enough before, this letter gave a new impulse. Their houses were searched night and day. The magistrates of Edinburgh had recourse to every means in order to discover such as were present in the Parliament clothes. And some of those who had been present on being brought before the Privy Council and refusing to depone upon oath, were at length denounced. Footnote. Rose's Life of Robert Blair, page 545. End footnote. The case of these ladies again came under the consideration of the Council at their meeting on the 16th of July, when the Council, quote, nominate and appoint the Earls Marischal, Caithness, Linlithgow, Wigton, and the Lord Register to meet upon Saturday next at three o'clock and to consider the condition of these persons imprisoned for being at the tumultuary meeting in the Parliament close and to report their opinion concerning them to the Council, as also to examine such of the women as were called and compared and were not dismissed by the Council and such others as shall appear before the Committee with power to the Committee to imprison any such persons as they shall find cause, and to report, end quote. At the same meeting, the, quote, council, having considered the petition of Margaret Johnston, prisoner in the toll booth of Edinburgh, do ordain the magistrates of Edinburgh to set her at liberty. She must, she first finding sufficient caution to confine herself to a chamber in the town of Edinburgh, and not to remove forth thereof, until the council shall give order anent her, under the pain of five hundred mercs. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. Again, taking up this case at their meeting on the 21st of July, the council, 
quote, ordain and command the committee formerly appointed to examine that tumult of the women in the Parliament close to call before them all such persons as have been given up in, in list already or against whom they shall have information or who have been already summoned as accessory to that tumult except such as appeared and were dismissed by the council and to examine them upon their own accession and guiltiness as also to examine them upon oath whom they knew to have accession to the contriving, drawing, or writing of that seditious petition they had among them, what persons they saw and knew to be in the Parliament close upon that account with them, who had the petition in their hands or offered copies to any of the council, and if they refused to depone thereupon, that they forthwith commit the refusers to prison until the council shall give further order and Margaret Johnston to be begun with tomorrow and to report to the council from time to time. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. From this act it appears that the council had not yet discovered that Mrs. Livingstone was the person who presented the petition to the councillor, but by zealous and unremitting in inquiries they at length succeeded in discovering the names of a considerable number of ladies who had been present at the tumultuous convocation, so-called, and no time was lost in acting upon this discovery. Letters were raised against them at the instance of Sir John Nisbet of Durleton, His Majesty's advocate, charging them with, quote, seditious and unlawful practices, end quote, for which they, quote, ought to be exemplarily punished to the terror and example of others to commit and do the like in time coming, end quote and summoning them to appear before the council personally on the 30th of July and answer to the complaint contained in the letters and hear and see such order taken there anent as appertained under the pain of rebellion. The ladies against whom these letters were raised were the following. Mrs. Elizabeth Rutherford, Rachel Aird, spouse to William Lorimer, merchant, and Sarah Lorimer, her daughter, Catherine Montgomery, relict of Mr. Robert Blair, Barbara Holm, spouse to Mr. Robert Lockhart, Isabel Kennedy, spouse to James Cloland, Elizabeth Dalziel, spouse to David Gray, Agnes Henderson, spouse to Robert Simpson, Margaret Dury, spouse to, Ro to George Dundas, brother to the Laird of Dundas. Footnote. There are some blanks here in the manuscript. End footnote. Relict of Mr. John Neve. Sarah Brand, spouse to Alexander Gershon, merchant in Edinburgh. Footnote. Blanks in the manuscript. End footnote. Kerr, Lady Mersington, younger. And Rachel Johnston, Lady Cremond. It may be interesting to note at some length from the letters raised against these ladies, both because they contain the Privy Council's account of the meeting in the Parliament close, and their version of the petition as well as a statement of the grounds upon which they found both to be seditious. The letters commence with an enumeration of the Acts of Parliament, of which the meeting and petition are said to be a violation. Quote, Making mention that by the laws and acts of this kingdom, it is prohibit and statute that no man come to any court but in quiet and sober manner, and all tumultuary convocations, commotions, uproars, and gatherings, especially within royal burgs, are prohibit under great and high pains, 
and by diverse laws and acts of Parliament, it is statute that if any person or persons presume or take upon hand, privately or publicly, to utter by word or write any slanderous speeches to the contempt and reproach of His Majesty's proceedings, or to meddle with the affairs of His Highness and His estate and proceedings, they are to be repute as seditious and wicked persons, enemies to His Majesty and the common weal of the realm and shall be punished with the pains therein contained. And by the second act of the second session of His Majesty's First Parliament, it is declared in statute that if any person or persons shall by writing, libeling, or remonstrating express, publish, or declare any words or sentences to stir up the people to hatred or dislike of His Majesty's royal prerogative or of the government of the Church by archbishops and bishops, as it is now settled by law that every such person or persons so offending shall be punished in manner and with the pains therein contained, and shall be liable to such farther pains as are due by the law and such. And by the first act of the first session of His Majesty's First Parliament, entitled, Anent Separation and Disobedience to Ecclesiastic Authority, His Majesty did declare that he expected from all his good and dutiful subjects a new acknowledgment of and hearty compliance with His Highness's government ecclesiastical and civil as it is now established by law within this kingdom and that in order thereunto they will give their cheerful concurrence and assistance to such ministers as by public authority are admitted in their several parishes and that His Majesty will and doth account a withdrawing from and not keeping and joining in the ordinary meetings for divine worship in the ordinary parishes to be seditious and of dangerous consequence. And by the said act, the same is punishable with the pains therein contained, and such other corporal punishment as the lords of privy council shall think fit, as also by diverse acts against conventicles it is statute that no outed minister not licensed by the council and no other person not authorized by the bishop of the diocese shall preach, expound scripture, or pray in any meeting except in their own houses and to those of their own family, and that none be present at such meetings which, the, which by the said act are declared to be the ordinary seminaries of rebellion under the pains therein expressed. End quote. Footnote. Decretes of Privy Council, July 30, 1674. End footnote. The letters next proceed to give an account of the meeting and of the petition presented by the ladies. After naming the persons against whom they were raised, they go on to say that these persons, quote, have in manifest contempt of His Majesty's authority presumed to contravene the foresaid laws and to commit and do the deeds, crimes, and seditious practices above mentioned insofar as the said persons and their associates and accomplices upon the fourth day of June last did in a most insolent, seditious, and tumultuary manner gather, convocate, and convene together in the court of His Majesty's Parliament House in such a number and multitude of persons that, that the said whole court was filled with women and a disorderly rabble, and the said convocation, commotion, and uproar was not only within the town of Edinburgh, the chief and capital city of the kingdom, an ordinary seat and place of judicature, and specially His Highness's council sitting there for doing of justice and preserving the quiet and peace of the kingdom, and punishing and preventing of tumults, but 
The said tumultuous convocation was of purpose and of design because the council was to sit upon the council day and immediately vote before and at the time of the sitting of His Majesty's said council and in court and at the very doors of the house where the council did sit and upon pretense that they came to council to present a petition and shaking off all respect to His Majesty's authority and to the councils and councillors the said persons and their accomplices did proceed to, to so great a height of insolence that many of the said women did go into and place themselves on the stair of the council house and others did stand in the court the way to the said council house and when the lords of the council were coming to the said court the multitude did so crowd and throng in upon them that with great difficulty they could go up to the council house and while they were going through the clothes and up the stairs of the council house some of the said women did take hold of some of them and did give them the double of the petition which they said they had given to be presented to the council and others amid the great noise and uproar did revile and utter injurious speeches against some of his majesty's councillors and as the said pretended petitioning remonstrating an application to his highness's privy council was most disorderly and seditious and of dangerous example and consequence as to the manner thereof so it was also most seditious and scandalous as to the matter and does contain and import reproaches and reflections upon his majesty's government and meddling in the affairs of his majesty and his estate and depraving his highness's laws and misconstructing his proceedings and libeling and remonstrating seditious words and sentences to stir up the people to the hatred and dislike of the government of the church by archbishops and bishops as it is now settled by law insofar as the said petition is in name of several women without naming them and without their subscriptions and it is in their own name and in the name of all who would adhere to them, inviting others and insinuating that they expect they will join with them. And the said petition bears most falsely and most scandalously that the petitioners had been long deprived of the inestimable blessing of the public worship and ordinances of God, whereas it is, whereas it is notor that His Majesty's subjects do enjoy the blessing of the public worship and ordinances of God in great purity and peace, and that there is an orderly ministry authorized and countenanced and established by law and the said persons by the petition foresaid do not only acknowledge their unlawful withdrawing from and not joining with the ordinary public meetings for divine worship and their keeping of conventicles and attendance upon worship in private contrary to so many laws but to presume to desire liberty to keep the said private meetings and conventicles prohibited by so many laws and that outed ministers whom they call their honest ministers, may be allowed to exercise their function as the people shall call them thereto, so that they might enjoy the rich blessing of faithful pastors, and that their pastors may be delivered from the sinful compliance of those who are contrary to the known judgment of honest Presbyterians, by all which desires, expressions, and others in the said petition, the petitioners do scandalously asperse and reflect upon His Majesty's government and in special upon the Church by archbishops and, and bishops, as it is settled by law, as if outed and disorderly ministers were the only honest ministers, and the people were deprived of the blessing of faithful pastors because the said outed ministers are not allowed to preach, and as if obedience to the laws and compliance of ministers with His Majesty's government ecclesiastical established by law were sinful end quote 
The letters next adduce their assembling a second time on the 11th of June as a high aggravation of their alleged seditious conduct. Quote, And the said persons, not content to have made the said seditious convocation, tumult and uproar at the time and in the manner above related, did again relapse and adventure upon the said seditious practices. And upon the 11th day of June, being the next council day thereafter, when the council was about to sit, and the time of the sitting thereof, they did again convene in the said place, and did make a disorderly convocation, commotion, and uproar, in manner and with the same, if not worse, circumstances than is above libeled, and had the boldness and confidence to pretend that they came for an answer to the said petition. End quote. The letters next charge several of these ladies, as Catherine Montgomery and Isabel Kennedy, with having, when convened before the Privy Council, although they confessed their being present at the said tumults, altogether and obstinately refused, quote, to declare upon oath their knowledge concerning the persons present and accessory to the said tumult and other circumstances relating to the same, end quote, whereby it is declared that they had incurred the penalties contained in the, quote, second act of the second session of His Majesty's second Parliament, entitled Act Against Delinquents Who Should Refuse to Depone, end quote, by which, quote, it is statute that all and every subject of this kingdom of what degree, sex, or quality soever, who shall be called by His Majesty's Privy Council or any others having authority from His Majesty to declare upon oath their knowledge of any crimes against His Majesty's laws, and the peace of the kingdom, and particularly of any conventicles or other unlawful meetings, and shall refuse or delay to declare or depone thereanent, they shall be punished in manner therein contained. End quote. Such is the amount of the charges brought against these female petitioners, and to answer to which they were summoned to appear at the bar of the Privy Council. But none of them made their appearance, believing that they that had they appeared and refused to make any acknowledgments which having committed no crime they were not prepared to make they would probably have been thrown into prison accordingly after quote being oft times called and not compearing the lords of his majesty's privy council july 30th do ordain letters to be directed to the messengers at arms to pass to the market cross of edinburgh footnote a blank in the manuscript here, end footnote, and thereat in His Majesty's name and authority duly, lawfully, and orderly to denounce the said Mrs. Elizabeth Rutherford, etc. His Majesty's rebels, and put them to the horn, and shite and imbring all their movable goods and gear to His Highness's use for their contempt and disobedience, end quote. Footnote, Decrees of Privy Council, July 30, 1674. End footnote. On the 29th of September, the Privy Council again convened, but little was done. Quote, only they were very hot upon the chase against the women that, of- that offered their petition. End quote. Footnote, Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 552. End footnote. As the name of Mrs. Livingston does not occur among the ladies who were summoned to appear before the Privy Council on the 30th of July, and who not appearing were declared His Majesty's rebels and put to the horn, 
It may be concluded that the Council had not yet discovered that she was at the head of the movement and was the person who presented the petition to the Chancellor. But by subsequent inquiries they appear to have made this discovery or to have found at least that at the tumultuous convocation, so-called, she had presented a copy of the petition to someone or other of the councillors. Accordingly, she and several other ladies, footnote, the names of the ladies as given in the Act of Council, 12th of November, are Mrs. Elizabeth Rutherford, Margaret Johnston, Lilius Campbell, Lady Mersington Elder, Bethia Murray, spouse to Hugh Mossman, Cooper in Leaf, Janet Fleming, relict of Mr. John Livingstone, Catherine Montgomery, relict of Robert Blair, Margaret Lundy, spouse to John Hamilton, merchant at the foot of the West Bow, Margaret Drury, spouse to George Dundas, brother to the Laird of Dundas, Isabel Kennedy, spouse to James Cleland, chirurgeon, Rachel Aird, spouse to William Lorimer, merchant, Sarah Lorimer, his daughter, Barbara Holm, spouse to Mr. Robert Lockhart, Elizabeth Dalziel, spouse to David Gray, hatmaker, Grizzle Durham, relict of Captain Drummond, and Agnes Henderson, spouse to Robert Simpson in Edinburgh. End footnote. Accordingly, Mrs. Livingstone and several other ladies were summoned to appear before the Council on the 12th of November that year. Quote, as being guilty of tumultuary convocation, commotion, and uproar within the Parliament close in the month of June last, the time of the meeting and sitting of the Council and of presenting a most insolent and seditious petition to some of the Council. End quote. Mrs. Livingstone and the others who were summoned compared before the Council on the 12th of November and on being examined confessed that they were quote, present in the said tumult. End quote. The result was that the Lords of the Council banished them from the city of Edinburgh, Leith, and suburbs thereof, and ordained them, ordained them against the 1st of December next to depart from the said bounds, discharging them to return thereto in future, as they would be answerable at their highest peril. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. Mrs. Livingstone and all the rest, with two exceptions, were obliged immediately to act in conformity with this sentence. The two exceptions were Margaret Johnston and Lilius Campbell, the execution of whose sentence was delayed for fourteen days by counsel at their meeting on the 3rd of December in answer to a petition presented by these ladies. After a short absence, some of the banished women privately returned to their own houses in Edinburgh, Receiving information of this, the authorities of the city caused search to be made for them. Footnote, Rowe's Life of Robert Blair, page 255. End footnote. But the storm appears gradually to have blown over, though the number of non-conforming ladies and especially of non-conforming ministers' wives and widows in Edinburgh continued to be a source of offense and uneasiness to the government. Footnote. On the 12th of March, 1679, quote, the council emitted sundry proclamations and commanded all the nonconform ministers, relics, or wives to avoid the town. End quote. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices of Scottish Affairs, Volume 1, page 225. End footnote. 
Thus terminated the proceedings against Mrs. Livingstone and her fellow petitioners, simply for their exercising a right of which no power on earth could justly deprive them. Their treatment by the council was, throughout, tyrannical and oppressive. Had they, like a regiment of Amazons assembled with pikes and muskets to do personal violence to their great enemy, Archbishop Sharp, as he at first dreaded, guilt would have lain upon them, great as his demerits were, and some pretext would have been afforded for the severity with which they were proceeded against. But they came together in no such warlike attitude, nor with any such intention. One writer of that period, Sir George Mackenzie, commonly called the Bloody Mackenzie, would indeed, either with the view of covering the tyranny of the government or of stigmatizing these religious women, have it to be believed that they had meditated Sharp's destruction. Quote, Petitions for able ministers, unquote, says he, quote, were given in to the council by many hundreds of women who, filling the Parliament clothes, threatened the Archbishop of St. Andrews, who passed along with the Chancellor, for whose coming he had waited in his own chamber. And some of them had conspired to set upon him when a woman, footnote, he no doubt means Mrs. Livingstone, end footnote, whom I shun to name, should raise her hand on, a, on high as a signal to prevent which the counselor entertained the woman with insinuating speeches all the time as he passed into the council, and so did divert that bloody design. End quote. Footnote, Sir George Mackenzie's Memoirs of the Affairs of Scotland, etc., page 273. End footnote. A more gratuitous assertion it is impossible to make. Neither Kirkton nor Rowe, both contemporary writers, nor Wadrow, who all narrate the history of this affair, gave the smallest countenance to such a statement. And should their evidence be suspected of partiality, we may appeal to the records of the proceedings of the Privy Council, in which, it is, in which is registered the result of the long and patient inquiries of the Committee of Council into all the circumstances connected with this application but in which a profound silence is preserved as to any such murderous intention, a circumstance not likely to have occurred had there been any ground whatever for such a charge. It is indeed manifest beyond controversy from all these authorities compared that the sole object of these ladies was the one ostensibly avowed in their petition. And yet Mackenzie's calumny has been taken up and given forth as historical truth by a writer of the present day. Quote, these Virgos, unquote, says the editor of Law's Memorials, quote, headed by the Reverend Mr. Livingstone's widow and a daughter of Lord Warriston, had laid a plan of murdering Archbishop Sharp, it being agreed that Mrs. Livingstone was to hold up her hand as a signal for the pious sisterhood to rend the prelate in pieces. But Lord Ross contrived to engage her in conversation till the opportunity was lost. End quote. Footnote. Editor's footnote in Law's Memorials, page 67. The editor refers to Kirkton and Wadrow as his authorities, but neither of these writers gives him the slightest support. Mackenzie, though not referred to, is his whole authority. End footnote. Mrs. Livingstone subsequently went over to Holland. Repeated allusions are made to her as residing there in the letters of Mr. John Carstairs to Mr. Robert McWard, Rotterdam, in the years 1677, 1678, and 1679, 
and whenever her name is mentioned, it is always with some epithet expressive of the high esteem in which she was held by the writer. In a letter to McWard, dated July 26, 1677, Carstairs says, so, um, quote, I salute much in the Lord that mother in Israel, choice Mrs. Livingstone, and her sweet daughter. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 65. End footnote. In another letter to him, dated February 8, 1678, he sends his salutations to her. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 65. End footnote. In a third letter to him, dated December 3, 1678, he says, quote, I am troubled for our loss of worthy Wallace and am glad that that mother in Israel, Mrs. Livingstone, is spared a while that we might not have sorrow upon sorrow. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 95. End footnote. In a fourth letter to him, dated February 17, 1679, he says, quote, I duly salute your worthy wife, worthy Mr. Gordon, my kind and obliging friend, choice Mrs. Livingstone, a mother indeed in Israel. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 109. End footnote. And in a fifth letter to him, dated Edinburgh, October 1679, he again sends his salutations to her. This is the last notice we have met with concerning her. How long she lived after this is uncertain, nor is it known whether she again returned to Scotland. The probability is that she spent the remainder of her days in Holland, and that her ashes, like those of her distinguished husband, repose in that hospitable retreat of our persecuted forefathers. Footnote. There is a portrait of Mrs. Livingstone in Gosford House, belonging to the Earl of Wemyss, as we learn from a footnote in Kirkton's History by the editor, page 345. End footnote. Some of Mrs. Livingstone's children emigrated from Scotland to America, to the state of New York, where their descendants have in the course of time become people of the first distinction and weight in society. The late Dr. John H. Livingstone, minister of the Reformed Dutch Church in New York, professor of divinity to that body, and president of Queen's College, New Jersey, one of the first men of his age and country, and whose memoirs have been written by Mr. Alexander Gunn, was the great-great-grandson of the subject of this memoir. Footnote. Chambers Biographical Dictionary of Eminent Scotsman, John Livingstone. End footnote. Lady Anne Lindsay, Duchess of Ross. Lady Anne Lindsay was the eldest daughter of John, 1st Earl of Lindsay and 15th Earl of Crawford, Lord High Treasurer of Scotland, by his wife, Lady Margaret Hamilton, second daughter of James, second Marquis of Hamilton. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 387. End footnote. Her paternal grandmother was the excellent Lady Boyd, already noticed. And her maternal grandmother was Lady Anne Cunningham, Marchioness of Hamilton, of whom some account has also been given. Her father, who was the son of Lady Boyd by her first husband, Robert, ninth Lord Lindsay of Byers, was, as we have seen before, 
a man of sound religious principle and the steadfast supporter of the Second Reformation cause, he warmly op- he warmly opposed, though without success, the passing of the Act Resistory in the First Parliament of Charles II, by which all the Parliaments since 1633 were annulled, and all the proceedings for Reformation between 1638 and 1650 were denounced rebellious and treasonable, and he declared himself against the establishment of prelacy, assuring His Majesty that a measure so opposed to the feelings of the Scottish people would be followed by the worst effects. A strenuous defender of the lawfulness and obligation of the national covenants, he refused to take the declaration abjuring them as unlawful oaths. Footnote. By the fifth act of the second session of Parliament, 1662, the declaration was ordained to be taken by all admitted to any public trust or office under His Majesty's government in Scotland, and those already in office were also required to subscribe it. End footnote for which Charles II, though he much respected him, incited by Archbishop Sharp, deprived him of his office of Lord High Treasurer of Scotland. His answer when Charles asked him whether he would take the declaration is worthy of being recorded. Quote, As I have suffered much, he said, for your majesty, even nine years imprisonment, forfeiture, and the ruin of my fortune, so I am resolved to continue your majesty's loyal and faithful subject and to serve you in whatever I can with a good conscience. But as for renouncing the covenant and taking the declaration, that I cannot do with a safe and good conscience. End quote. And when Lauderdale, afraid lest his enemy Middleton should obtain the office of treasurer, urged him to take the declaration by the argument that he would thus, by retaining his place, be in a better capacity for promoting the interests of the nonconformists than he could be in a private station, he replied like a man of principle that he was taught not to do evil that good might come. Footnote. Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 441. End footnote. Resigning his situation as Lord High Treasurer, he retired to his house at Struthers and spent the remainder of his days in privacy. Quote, He was a man, unquote, says Douglas, quote, of great virtue, of good abilities, and of an exemplary life in all respects. He died at Tyningham in 1676, aged about 80. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 386. End footnote. Lady Anne's mother was also eminent for virtue and piety. Rose speaks of her as the Earl of Crawford's most religious lady who was deservedly praised of all who knew her. And he informs us that when all about her and all Crawford's friends in Scotland were lamenting the loss of his place, she heartily rejoiced and blessed God that he had kept a good conscience, and himself free of perjury and covenant-breaking, etc., trusting in God that he would provide for him and his. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 442. End footnote. Robert Blair, who knew her personally, speaking of her on his deathbed, said, Quote, My Lady Crawford, set her alone, set her alone among women. End quote. Footnote, Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 495. End footnote. Lady Anne, thus descended from godly parents, enjoyed the inestimable benefit of a religious education, and her parents had the satisfaction of witnessing the fruits of their instructions and example in the eminence of her piety, 
which she exemplified throughout life by a conversation becoming the gospel. The fervor of her devotion, the benevolence of her disposition, the humility of her demeanor, and the sanctity of her deportment are all honorably mentioned by her contemporaries. Law describes her as a, quote, discreet, wise, virtuous, and good lady, end quote. Footnote, Law's Memorials, page 202, end footnote. And others who knew her speak in the highest terms of her Christian excellence. In her youth, which was contemporaneous with the best days of the covenant, she was strictly educated in the Presbyterian faith, to which she continued to adhere in its every variety of fortune, in its adversity, as well as in its prosperity. After the restoration of Charles II, she was exposed by the circumstances in which she was placed to great temptations to become indifferent or hostile to the principles of presbytery. Her husband John, 6th Earl of Ross, to whom she had been previously married, was a member of the persecuting government of Charles, and she was under the necessity of mingling to a considerable extent with the unprincipled and persecuting statesmen of that period. But her convictions and feelings remained unaltered, and the ejected ministers on whose side her sympathies were enlisted, she was ever ready to the utmost of her ability to befriend. Some of them she succeeded in continuing in their charges after their persecutors had marked them out for rejectment. Mr. Black, minister of Leslie, for example, a man whom she highly esteemed and under whose ministry she sat when residing at Leslie House, was, though a nonconformist, through her intercession with the Bishop of Dunkeld, continued in the exercise of his ministry in his own parish when that prelate in 1664 summarily deposed all the other non-conforming ministers in his diocese. Footnote. Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 473. End footnote. The friendly interest she took in the persecuted ministers she evinced in many other ways. Quote, rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Unquote. She often ministered to their temporal necessities and entertained them with hospitality and kindness when they visited her at Leslie House. On these occasions they endeavored to keep out of the eye of the Duke, for, though not naturally inclined to cruelty, yet from political considerations he put on the appearance of severity. He was not, however, ignorant that they were harbored and reset by the Duchess, but he connived at them on her account, and on happening, as he sometimes did happen, to see any of them about the house, being a man of humor, he was in the habit of saying to her, quote, My lady, I would advise you to keep your chickens in about, else I may pick up some of them. End quote. Footnote. McCree's Memoirs of Veach and Bryson, page 295. Among other instances of the persecuted finding shelter in similar situations, it may be mentioned that previous to the Civil Wars, while Dr. Scott, Dean of York, was employed at cards or other games to which he was much addicted, Mrs. Scott was attending a conventicle in another room, the Dean's house being reckoned the safest place for holding such assemblies. Brooks' Lives of the Puritans, Volume 3, page 528. End footnote. Other anecdotes of a similar kind are still current and have been recorded by Miss Strickland in her very interesting work entitled Lives of the Queens of England. After noticing that the Duchess, quote, 
favored the doctrines of the Covenanters and as far as she could protected their preachers who were frequently concealed in the neighborhood of Leslie House, unquote, she adds, quote, The Duke never sent out his officers to apprehend any of these persons without previously endeavoring to provide for their escape by giving a significant hint to his compassionate Duchess in these words. My hawks will be out tonight, my lady, so you had better take care of your blackbirds. The local traditions of Leslie add that the signal by which her grace warned her spiritual protégés of their danger was a white sheet suspended from one of the trees on the brow of the hill behind the house, which could be seen from a considerable distance. Other telegraphic signs the good lady had, no doubt, to intimate the absence of her spouse when they might safely come forth and preach to their hillside congregation. End quote. Footnote. McCree's Memoirs of Veach and Bryson, Volume 9, page 117. End footnote. Nor was she backward to intercede with the Duke and other members of the government for the persecuted ministers. Well assured of her friendly disposition, they confidently applied to her to exert in their behalf the influence which from her situation she had with the Duke and other members of the Privy Council. An instance of this in the time of Mr. Robert Wiley, when he was indulged minister of Fenwick, is preserved among his manuscripts which form a part of Wadrow's collections. All the indulged ministers having on the 3rd of September 1675 got a charge of horning to pay their respective proportions of the ordinary fees due for the parishes where where they resided to the clerk and burster of the diocesan synod of Glasgow, Mr. Robert Wiley, with several others refused from scruples of conscience to make payment. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 297. End footnote. He accordingly applied for a suspension and sent a petition to the Privy Council praying for relief from that imposition, and at the same time he transmitted a copy of the petition to the Duchess to give her an idea of the case, accompanied with a letter requesting her friendly intercessions with the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council in furtherance of his petition. The letter, which is written in a tone that bespeaks the confidence he reposed in her sympathy and friendship, is as follows. Quote, Fenwick, 2nd December, 1675. Madam, I humbly crave pardon that I presume to trouble your ladyship with any petty business that concerns me. But being desirous to live quietly and with, with bosom peace, to close my days in the work of the gospel... I hope it will not offend your ladyship that I entreat for your honor's help to hold off the inconveniences that may apparently fall upon me if not prevented. Madam, the matter is this. I am charged with letters of horning to pay fees to the clerk of the bishop's synod and dues to burser of prelatic choice, which, considering the Presbyterian principles grounded on the scriptures and the standing obligation of the oath of God upon the conscience, I have no freedom to do, and therefore sent for a suspension of the charges which I hear was granted, but the clerks are loath to give it out until they would know the council's mind. Footnote. The difficulty of obtaining a suspension arose from the fact that the payment of the clerks and bursar's fees was required by the council's act of indulgence, September 2, 1672. End footnote. Being desirous to leave no means unassayed to hold weights off my conscience and troubles off my person, I have sent a petition to be presented to the most honorable lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, holding forth the grounds of my refusal, 
and supplicating that their lords would grant me the free exercise of my ministry with reservation of my principles and liberty of my judgment, and that their lordships would be pleased to discharge all legal procedure against me as the petition does more fully purport. A copy whereof, for your ladyship's information, I have herewith enclosed, knowing that the draft will be kept as a secret with your honor, and made use of only for your private information, that your ladyship may the better know the affair and how to speak to it as occasion offers. And now, madam, my humble request to your ladyship is that you would be pleased to speak to such members of the council as your honor thinks convenient, in order to the inclining of them to give a favorable answer unto my petition, that now in my old days, when I am laboring under manifold infirmities, I may have liberty to close the latter part of my time in the peaceable preachings of the gospel, without pressuring me, with impositions grating upon my conscience, and putting a crazy person to unnecessary tossings. Madam, I do again beg pardon for this presumption, and wishing all abounding of grace, all the blessings of the everlasting covenant, to be plentifully poured out upon your ladyship and all yours, I rest, Madam, your ladyship's Thomas Wiley. End quote. Footnote. Mr. Wiley's Manuscripts Among the Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 30, Number 16. There is no signature to the letter. It is addressed on the back for the Countess of Roths. End footnote. That the friendly endeavors of this lady would not be wanting to promote the success of Mr. Wiley's petition, there can be little doubt from what we know of her character and her intercessions, judging from the result, were not without success. The relief which Mr. Wiley so earnestly solicited was at length granted by the government, for in a new proclamation issued on the 1st March next year, two of the rules, according to which the indulged ministers by the indulgence 1672 were required to act, are omitted, the one regarding their waiting on dioceses and meetings, and the other respecting their paying dues to the clerk and bursar of the diocese and synod. Mr. Wiley, however, continued to feel uneasy under the other restrictions of the indulgence. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 336. End footnote. On the introduction of field preaching into Fife, the Duchess used to attend these much maligned and proscribed meetings. One of the places which, in those troubled times, she frequented to hear the sermons of the field preachers was Glenvale, a beautiful sequestered spot in the parish of Strathmiglo, Fifeshire, quote, lying between West Lomond and Bishop Hill. About the middle of the valley it expands into a fine amphitheater on the south, capable of containing many thousand persons. On the north side is a large project, projecting rock, which is said to have been occupied by the ejected ministers as a pulpit. End quote. Footnote. McCree's Memoirs of Veach, etc., page 295. McCree's Sketches of Scottish Church History, 2nd edition, page 420. End footnote. In this favorite place of resort, which in point of romantic scenery may bear comparison with the wild recess in Cartland Craigs, where the Covenanters of the West met for the same purpose, Immense multitudes from all the surrounding districts often assembled for the worship of God. Quote, in the year 1678, unquote, to quote from a well-attested account of the sufferings of the Presbyterians in Kinrushshire, 
Quote, the field meetings were kept very frequently through the whole Shire, but oftener in Glenville because it was the center of that large congregation which extended to Cupar of Fife on the east, to Kirkaldy on the south, to Salon and Dollar on the west, and to Perth on the north. There were five or six parishes engaged together to keep up the preaching of the gospel among themselves, and by turns each parish sent to Edinburgh and brought a minister, so that they seldom wanted a sermon on the Lord's Day. End quote. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio Number 143. End footnote. In attending these so-called seditious meetings and rendezvous of rebellion, as they were stigmatized by the Privy Council, the Duchess incurred the heavy penalties under which they were interdicted. But like others of the ladies of the members of the government who were led by curiosity or piety to field conventicles, she was overlooked, the council not deeming it prudent to carry the persecution into the bosom of their own families. The leniency which the Duke of Ross exercised toward these field meetings in Fife, it is believed, was owing in no small degree to their being favored and countenanced by the Duchess. On one occasion when forty individuals who had been apprehended for a conventicle in Glenvale were brought before him in Leslie and he was asked what was to be done with them, put them, said he, in Bailey Walker's back room, the place they all liked so well. The Bailey was a religious man and meetings for social prayer and conference were often held in his back room. When asked what further orders he had to give respecting them, the Duke answered, Give them plenty of meat and drink and set them about their business in the morning. Footnote. McCree's Memoirs of Beach, etc., page 295. End footnote. He knew that Glenville was a favorite place of resort for his own lady, and that these poor individuals brought before him that had done nothing to merit punishment were guilty, in fact, of holding no principles and following no practices for which she might not have been equally impeached. An evidence of the tender-hearted sympathy of the Duchess with the persecuted Covenanters is furnished in the following anecdote. Archbishop Sharp, having on one occasion come to dine with the Duke, complained to him at dinner that two of his tenants, David and James Walker, were keepers of conventicles. This complaint the Archbishop strongly and vehemently urged, though the Duchess, of whose attachment to the Presbyterian interest he could not be ignorant, was present for deference to her feelings was overborne by his inveterate malignity against these worthy men. The Duke, who expressed his surprise at this information, said that, quote, he should take an effectual course with them and see them both stringed, end quote, footnote, that is, hanged, end footnote. The Archbishop insisted that he should not forget them, for they were incendiaries through all fife upon which the Duke gave orders to his manservant who was standing at his back to send immediately to the town of Leslie in the neighborhood of which they lived and bring them down to him after dinner, promising to the archbishop that they should give the government no further trouble. To this discourse the Duchess, though it appears she made no remarks, listened with great pain. The two men who were eminent for piety being her Christian friends for whom she entertained a high esteem nor had she much respect for Sharp, who, besides being first a traitor to the Church of Scotland and then its persecutor, had injured her father for being a more honest man than himself. It may therefore be easily believed, as Wadrow observes, that, quote, this spoiled my lady duchess's dinner, unquote. She was aware that the Duke, 
who was ambitious of place and power, had to secure the favor of Sharp, whose influence at court was great, and to keep the prelatic clergy at his devotion, done acts of violence which he was not naturally inclined to commit, and was therefore afraid that in the present instance, to gratify the prelate, he would subject these good men to persecution. Her fears were, however, happily disappointed. The two nonconformists immediately came down to the palace at Leslie. After dinner, the duke accompanied Sharp to his coach, and on being again reminded by the prelate not to spare the two delinquents, he told him they were come, and assured him he should not fail to handle them severely. But on his coming upstairs and calling for them, he simply asked them in a friendly way the prices of the markets, what grain it was best for him to sow in such and such parts of his lands about Leslie and similar questions, after which he dismissed them without any mark of displeasure or asking them a single question in reference to the subject as to which he had professedly brought them to his house. Quote, the Duchess, unquote, says Wadro, quote, retired from dinner in deep concern for the men and gave orders to a servant to bring them in to her when the Duke parted with them by a back gallery. Accordingly, they came. The Duchess was all in tears and almost trembling, asked what had passed. They told her nothing but kindness. Whether this was to be attributed to the Duchess's prayers in their behalf or to the Duke's natural temper, who was not inclined to violence, I am not to determine, but the fact is certain. End quote. Footnote. Wadro's Analecta, Volume 4, page 42. Mr. John Loudon, who was some time a tutor in the family of Ross and afterward a minister of the Church of Scotland, was Wadro's informer. He received this anecdote from the Duchess herself. End footnote. The Duchess was greatly tried in her domestic life. Beside being connected with the persecuting government of Charles, the Duke was unprincipled and profligate, devoting himself, quote, without either restraint or decency, to all the pleasures of wine and women. End quote. Footnote. Burnett's Own Times, Volume 1, page 175. End footnote. Quote, he gave himself, says Fountain Hall, great liberty in all sorts of pleasures and debaucheries, particularly with Lady Anne, sister of the first Duke of Gordon, whom he took along with him in his progress through the country with hat and feather, and by his bad example affected many of the nobility and gentry. End quote. Footnote. Fountain Hall's diary, quoted in Kirkton's History by the editor, page 204. End footnote. But trying as this was to the Duchess, the admirable prudence and gentleness which marked her temper and conduct under it all so impressed the Duke as to make him ashamed of the manner in which he was treating her. Quote, it was, unquote, says Kirkton, quote, confidently reported that his infamous converse with Lady Anne Gordon touched his own conscience so much that one day, being under the dint of his own conviction and reflecting upon his misbehavior toward his worthy lady, whom he could not but admire, he threw all the wretched love tokens his miss had given him into the fire upon suspicion and fear he he was detained by detained her captive by the power of witchcraft, as very many said he was. End quote. Footnote. Kirkton's History, page 212. End footnote. Still more calculated to excite in the mind of the Duchess the most poignant distress were the circumstances connected with his death. His days may be said to have been shortened by his intemperance, 
So strong was his constitution that he could outdrink two or three sets of drunkards in succession, and after the greatest excesses, an hour or two of sleep so completely recruited him that he could go, to go about business without any apparent disorder in either body or mind. This could not always last. It ultimately un undermined his vigorous constitution, producing such diseases of stomach that when not hot within and full of strong drink, he had perpetual colics, so that he was always either sick or drunk. Footnote, Burnett's Own Times, Volume 1, page 175. End footnote. He was seized with his last illness in Edinburgh. On his deathbed, his conscience was awakened, and as he looked on his past life and forward to a coming judgment, the horrors of despair settled on his soul. He sent for some of his lady's ministers, those men who, when entertained by her at Leslie's house, were afraid to meet with him in the days of his robust health, he sent for them now that, if possible, they might minister relief to his troubled conscience. Two of them, Mr. John Carstairs and Mr. George Johnston, who were then in Edinburgh, came to Holyrood House where he lay. And while they spoke to him freely of the sinfulness of his former ways, as fidelity demanded, true to their office as messengers of peace, they told him that pardon and mercy were to be obtained through the blood of Jesus for the greatest sinners of Adam's race, even at the eleventh hour. Mr. Carstairs, a man unequaled in his day in the gift of prayer, engaged in that exercise, and so weighty and affecting were his sentences as to draw tears from almost everyone present. But all availed not to pacify the conscience of the dying nobleman. He said to Carstairs, quote, we all thought little of what that man Cargill did in excommunicating us, but I find that sentence binding upon me now, and it will bind to eternity. End quote. The Duke of Hamilton, who witnessed the scene deeply moved, said, quote, When in health we hunt and persecute these men, but when dying we call for them. This is melancholy work. End quote. The dying Duke expired at Holyrood House on the 27th July, 1681, in the 51st year of his age. His funeral obsequies were performed with unusual pomp. His body was first privately brought up from Holyrood House to the High Church of St. Giles, accompanied with a train of coaches. Thence it was conducted with the greatest magnificence to the Royal Chapel of Holyrood House by a numerous procession, the order of which is given by Arnott in his History of Edinburgh. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue 
Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.